Welcome to Homelessness Matters Season 2, a podcast by Emmaus. This season, we want to ask important questions about homelessness and how it's connected to wider society. Is there more to homelessness than what you see on the street? What can cause someone to lose their home? And how does the way our society works prevent people from accessing affordable housing? In each episode, we'll explore a different topic. You'll hear from people who have experienced homelessness and have been supported by one of 30 Emmaus charities across the UK, experts who can explain each topic in more detail, and we'll get a snapshot of what the public thinks about these crucial issues facing the country today. In episode four, we'll be discussing housing as a human right and whether those rights are being properly respected in the UK today. We'll hear from Helen about how she was nearly forced out of her home just days before Christmas in 2021 because her accommodation was tied to her job. We'll also speak to Tim Renshaw, who runs a homelessness support charity in the north of England and can help us answer that crucial question. Is the current housing system fit for purpose? A warning before we begin that this episode contains strong language. Uh, Helen, thank you so much for joining us on on the podcast and agreeing to, to share your story. Um, so your your experience of unstable housing was, was relatively recent. Um, it's December 2021, um, three days before Christmas. Uh, could you explain your, your setup at that point? Um, I would, as soon as I found out, I'd uh, been dismissed from my job. And my home, the manager of the pub actually wanted me out to get accommodation that day. And that that is really really difficult um i turned to the council uh, which was a horsham district council unfortunately they were unable to help me because i'd moved out of the area so so like losing your job um and your home along with it yeah um because because they were both sort of dependent on each other were they yes um but i mean i must have come as like a real shock Yes, it, yeah, it was a real, it was a real shock when you knew that you're going to be in in this situation. You're potentially going to be made homeless around Christmas. What was going through your mind? What? Well, the first thing was to try not to panic um, uh, or worry, but unfortunately, um, I do worry, and it it made me become ill. Um, I hardly ate because I didn't have much money. I was going to each estate agent and because they wouldn't entertain me because I hadn't got a job. That is the crux of it, is if you do not have a job and you're homeless, you're not going to get... Well, once you're in that situation, it, it could be really hard to get out. It is, it certainly is. Um, also, the downfall does lie with the councils. Um, there isn't enough uh, social housing being built. Because well, you, because you went to, you, you said yeah. earlier that you went, so you went to the council, yeah, for that support, and obviously it was around Christmas, but yeah, but what was the service like compared to what you maybe expected in terms of emergency? Um, it was well, um, basically, I was told to go back to Crawley because that's where Peace Pottage comes under. Let's go to Crawley, and so did I suppose they did not feel like did feel like it was like they were going to fob you off. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, and so you you spoke a little bit about it, but I suppose if you go into a bit more detail about the problems that you came up against when you were trying to get that emergency accommodation. Um, it was, it, the council were not very, well, no, they weren't very particularly helpful. Um, they wouldn't even put me up into emergency, a, a B&B or anything. Right. They would, they just basically weren't prepared to help. Right. And and was that 
um, to do with yeah, any stigma against you and your situation, or, or do you think it was no, to do with no, the, it's I the think, council's ability to do that? Um, I I think what it was is because if you move out of an area and then move back, they classes that you haven't lived long enough in the in the area. Uh, and do I have any local connections? And I said, well, yes, I do. I said, my boyfriend at the time, um, he he lives in Storrington, um, which is. Uh, 18 miles outside of Horsham, I said, I have a partner. They said, well, why can't you go and live with him? And I said, he's in temporary accommodation. I said, he lives in Abbey Court. And they said, well, can't you move in? So they they were just, it seemed like there was a lot of you know, barriers and a lot of stepping stones. Yes, there was. There were lots of hoops to jump through. So I went back to the council. I was to and froing um, for a number of days and after Christmas and into the new year uh, and uh, my homeless prevention officer at Horsham District Council got me in touch with the mayors or put me in touch with the mayors and I had a taste today. Uh, I had to wait three days and um, I got a call from the Rendler community manager saying that I'd been accepted and I've not looked back. Um, I've been given some absolutely fantastic opportunities since I've been here, um, I've had um, I've been on several courses. Uh, one of them, floristry, twice a computer course, uh, and I also had the great opportunity to go and do some solidarity work with Emmaus Krefeld in Germany, which was an experience and a half. It was unbelievable, uh, and I went and helped one of the, one of the teams that actually bring in income for Emmaus Krefeld, which is their uh, uh, and Stoss, which they do uh, landscaping and gardening. I went for a job uh, with Brighton Hove City Council. Uh, I had my interview and I was lucky enough to be offered a position. And I am now on the move on policy. And now I am looking for somewhere to live. It's it's great that Emmaus was, was able to yes. intervene and support yeah. that, that quickly and that you were able yes. to avoid that situation yes. of becoming... Yeah. Um, street homeless. So, so obviously, with you, you were able to to come to Emmaus. Um, but I suppose if if that wasn't there, um, and if you hadn't had that chance interaction with the the housing prevention officer, and and they hadn't told you about Emmaus, um, it, it feels like you know there was a lot of these things that have to happen. Um, that that you know you were fortunate enough to to land yourself in a good situation. But if those sort of chance interactions hadn't happened, would have been very very detrimental to my mental health. I suffer from anxiety and depression. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that sort of moves us on quite nicely to to the the point of this episode, which is, you know, a, a home is a basic human right. That's, yes. that's what this episode is about. And obviously, uh, I, th- I think demonstrated really well how becoming homeless, that threat of homelessness, and how suddenly it can happen. Yeah. Um, it is really important um, that that there are protections in place. Yes. Um, and so the, the UN has got this um, convention which says uh, housing is a human right, not a commodity. Under international law, to be adequately housed means to have secure tenor, not having to worry about being evicted or having your home or lands taken away. Some fascinating insight there about how sudden changes and that imbalance of power can leave people without that security of a place to call home. But now we'll hear from you. 
My colleague Bryony and I went out in search of your views on homelessness in the UK today. Here's one of the many conversations that we had on the streets of Manchester. Okay, so I'm going to read a statement out, and this is a statement by the UN. So, housing is a human right, not a commodity. Under international law, to be adequately housed means having secure tenant and not having to worry about being evicted or having your lands taken away. What do you think about that? I think that's completely true. I think, especially walking around the city today, and not just here, increasingly I walk around Liverpool a lot as well. There's so many homeless and there's so many vacant properties here as well. Um, being bought by overseas kind of big firms, which is only recently. Is that George Osborne that brought in stuff like that? It was a, it's a mess. I can't believe we're just allowing that to happen because it's a choice, isn't it, really? Do you think enough people um, can access a safe, secure and affordable home? Definitely not. I mean, it's evident. I mean, it's hard enough for new buyers like myself can't find a home anywhere and I've got a full-time job um I've got two full-time jobs and me and my partner we can't get a house never mind someone who doesn't have a job or no access to it I've got no idea why it's so increasingly hard you know it's ridiculous and last question um so this is sort of like a multiple choice so how many households in the UK do you think are living in temporary accommodation is it a 1000 is it b 10,000 or is it c 100,000 plus I assume the highest number. You're absolutely correct. Uh, it is 104,510. And an estimated 131 of those are children. Thanks to everyone who agreed to give us their views. We really appreciate you taking part. Now you'll hear from Tim Renshaw. He's the CEO of The Arch Project, which supports those experiencing homelessness in and around Sheffield. We spoke in depth about the UK's homelessness crisis and whether the laws currently in place for tenants in the UK are fit for purpose. So, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So, firstly, um, if you tell listeners who you are and what you do. Uh, thanks, uh, Ewan. I'm uh, I'm Tim Renshaw. I, I work in Sheffield uh, at a project in the city centre which uh, works with uh, people who are rough sleeping, but also we're interested in the journey away from homelessness. So we work uh, with people who are still on the street through to uh, providing some work in social enterprises so that, uh, that there's a step on uh, to life outside homelessness altogether. Excellent. And and uh, be, before we get on to um, the, the main part of this episode, it, it was a year ago, um, yesterday, I think, wasn't it, that, that you spent 14 days on the street and, and you actually wrote a book about your experience. So, so tell us a bit about that. Uh, it, it is. Uh, I, I set off on a on Sunday the 2nd, uh, really wondering what the next 14 days was going to be like, um, hoping uh, that it wouldn't rain too much, um, and uh, thinking really I'd be okay, uh, I'd be okay. Um, but I took um, with me the stories of 18 years of working with people who are homeless. So within that, and, and having prepared for it and talked to people who had experience of sleeping and um, taking some advice. I knew there were some things I could do and some things I couldn't do if I was genuinely on the street. Right. Um, and really, it was that experience of thinking about what other people experience that made it um, a really emotional experience for me. For instance, there was uh, uh, the seventh day I was walking across the city um, oh, 
and and just to say i stopped at 14 different churches um uh so we went from church to church and in and there's a, a fakeness about that uh but it also meant that we went around sheffield uh and i was walking to this church uh and my battery on my phone had died uh, that's normal for people on the street uh i had to have a, a live phone because i was the only rough sleeper who had to have a um health and safety uh, assessment for his rough sleeping <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a risk assessment <clears throat> Uh, and when I got to the church in the evening, uh, the phone had been off a lot during that day. I, I plugged it in. Uh, mm. I gave it about 20 minutes and then turned it on. And it went ping, 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 ping. And there were messages there from people. Are you okay? We've not heard from you today and all of those sorts of things. Mm. And I sat down with a cup of tea and it suddenly struck me how fortunate I was to have that level of interest in my welfare. And I just burst into tears because I realized that actually the people I work with don't have that level of interest. Nobody's phoning them up. Nobody's chasing them to say, are you okay today? Especially yeah. on a Saturday, you know, because yeah. <laughs> the services in general, the public services in general are, are closed. So it, it's moments like that, that, that and, and it starts to get under the skin about what it's really like to be on the street. Uh, and when I was reflecting on it afterwards, I, I write a chapter which I call, if you'll excuse me, fuck you. <laughs> um, because uh, uh, towards the end, I was walking through a, a park uh, one day just to find a loo. It's the other thing, where do you go to the loo? Uh, most of our big cities have actually closed all their public toilets. Yeah, or they or they cost. Yeah. All they cost. That, yeah. That's right. So there's a big there's a big park in in Sheffield, Millhouse Park, and I was walking through there, thinking there's got to be a public toilet here somewhere. And it was a time of day when grandparents were had picked up children from school and were taking them to the park. And there were some young mums, mainly young mums, but some young dads too, walking around push chairs. And in the park, there's a nice middle class cafe. Mm. Uh, and I looked at all this and knew that actually that's my normal life. I've got a granddaughter um, walking through. I can afford coffees in nice middle-class coffee shops. Mm. But in my 13-day-old underwear and dirty socks and all of those sorts of things, I felt as I didn't belong. And nobody knew that I didn't belong. Everybody just, you know, I couldn't join in with everybody. Mm. And I thought, this, this is the experience, actually, and, and, and lots yeah. of People who are living on the street say that. They, I, I shared the same geography as everybody else. I didn't share the same environment in any other way. I didn't belong in the way that they belonged. I couldn't participate in the way they could participate. So it's that disconnection. And I, I just wanted to shout out, you know, I don't hate you. I just want to say, fuck you for being like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, because I'm not part of you. In in this episode, so we're we're, we're exploring the idea of, of housing as a human right, and I suppose we'll we'll come on to um, the 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 results of, of whether that's really being put into practice um, in mm -hmm. in the UK. So so uh, yeah, it's defined by the United Nations um, in their Declaration of, of Human Rights. Um, a quick background for listeners: under international law, everybody has the right to be adequately housed, but what does that mean? It means having what's called a secure tenure, not having to worry about being evicted and, and having your home or lands taken away. Um, how important is that, that this standard is internationally 
recognised? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, governments around the world change and we're seeing, you know, even our politics today, this fight between uh, right and left in so many different countries or, or right and middle, actually, in so many different countries. Yeah. Uh, to take away this essential idea that people are owed something uh, and we should get rid of the uh, the must-dos uh, and we should reduce the tax burden and we should make it a much more free-for-all type uh, um, state of politics. And, and actually, you need something international to challenge those really quite large but localised ideas about what it means to be a country and uh, what it means to have rights. Uh, there are places in this world we know where people are totally overlooked, whole communities are overlooked, and that basic standard does not exist. And we think about that as as in underdeveloped countries. But look at, look at our country. Look at our country at the moment. We talk about the right to secure housing, and yet we don't have enough housing stock to service the population that we have in Britain. Yeah, well, the, and, the UN's view is, yeah. is that uh, most countries, including the UK, are, are treating housing more as a commodity than a human right, um, yeah. which, which is allowing right. breaches of this this right on a daily yes. basis with impunity. Uh, I, I assume you think that that's a, a fair assessment of the situation? Um, absolutely. We've talked about it several times that... Once you financialize something, once you make it a commodity that can be a, a transaction or an asset, is it part of my pension fund to own three houses uh, that's going to return me a value when I retire? That sort mm. of uh, thinking about uh, accommodation. Then we take away the basic idea that it's somebody's place to live and to grow and to be safe and to form attachments with. Um, rather than something we can give somebody, somebody and uh, and then take it away from them if they don't meet the conditions, which is normally, let's face it, financial at the moment, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and one of the major snags with with, with this, um, I think, is that these rights aren't, aren't currently legally binding um, in any way that, would, that mm -hmm. would force a government to make drastic changes. Uh, do you think that needs to change? I'd love that to change. I don't think there's a will necessary for that to change, and that's a, a big weakness. And what, why do you can, think that is? Uh, partly because uh, housing stock has become commodities and partly because it's bound up with people's sense of future, uh, their, as I say, their pension pot, their, what, what they can cash in, uh, what they've invested in in order to build up their nest egg for the future. Uh, partly because we've got a whole... Um, growing population of younger people who uh, who are not going to receive a handout that's going to give them the high level of uh, of um, deposit to put down in order to get on the market, partly because we've got big areas in the country where rents are so high, uh, far greater than uh, than the mortgages people might have been paying if they were living in those uh, in that accommodation. So there's all sorts of factors that are working against uh, the popular idea that some that everybody should have a home that is their own. And we're not thinking in that sort of way any longer as a society. We are thinking in terms of how do I protect my security for the future 
rather than how do we build good communities. And that's uh, once we start thinking in that sort of way, then we're driven into what what is my investment returning? What is my pension pot returning? Am I getting enough? Am I going to survive in old age? And once I'm focused on whether I'm secure or not, then I'm taken away from this idea of community. And how do you think we we should go about um, changing that? Well, I think it has to be politically driven. Uh, for example, we we had a change in the budgets in in the early two thousand tens, which uh, talked about um, affordable rents rather than affordable houses. Now that's a really small difference in language, but it's a huge difference in policy. So all we have to do is to make sure, and and even then. Uh, the formula means that it actually doesn't work out in reality, that there's going to be housing in the rented market that people will be able to afford rather than it investing in housing stock that will remain for a long period of time that's accessible at an affordable price. That's a gulf in, in, in outcomes, a difference in outcomes. Now, if we can get away with that politically, then we're not serving the future generation really well. So politically, we need to change those things. We need to be investing in affordable housing for people to buy and to own rather than the concept of affordable rents. And the reason affordable rents will never work is because they're linked to the local market. So and we've got a situation, you know, I'm in Sheffield talking to some young people who are talking about average rents for uh, a property they share being around about 1300 1400 1500 pound a month that's in sheffield london it's a massive amount of money so in order for people who are earning an okay wage in their starter years they're going to have to share that accommodation it also means they're expending all the money they might have been investing in an asset for security for the future um in in the rented market and filling up somebody else's pension pot and not and not their own that can only change with political will. And there, I don't see the political will. I don't hear the political will at the moment to change that. I hear lots of talk about the fact we're not building enough homes mm. uh, and focusing on the number of homes we're building. I don't hear the discussion enough on what type of homes will we build if we were building enough homes. It's a really interesting point because I suppose hearing a politician say uh talk about housing um in terms of it being a right in in terms of something that should be accessible to all that uh if if a politician was to a mainstream politician was to to start talking about housing in that way it, it would be quite extraordinary wouldn't it and, and be yeah uh, that's right because we're putting in conditions again and we're in this political domain at the moment of let's get rid of the conditions um Let's free ourselves up. Let's not put barriers in the way. Uh, but of course, we're talking uh, barriers in the way of accumulating wealth, I think. Uh, not, uh, And we're creating barriers for others to get off the poverty step. Listeners will have just heard from from Helen, one of the, the people being supported by Emmaus. She was an assistant pub manager um, with her job tied to her accommodation um, until she was asked to leave both her job and her home just days before Christmas in 2021. Um, 
luckily the goodwill of her former boss's partner actually stopped her having to leave immediately. Um, but let's say that that didn't happen. Mm. Would Helen have had much recourse there? She would go to a local authority and uh, she would have to apply or register as homeless. Mm. And then she'd undergo an assessment to see if there was a duty to provide for her. Which they they did. Um, and yeah. and uh, because she'd moved out the area for uh, a small amount of time, despite <laughs> living there for many years, they, they said, no, we can't help you. And, and that was going to be my next thing. It all it all depends then on the terms of and and you know we don't go through our life thinking uh, how do I stay within the conditions of how do I how do I get accommodation if I lose this accommodation? We live our lives. We get on with our lives. We 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 don't have those duties. So uh, some of the things about local connection, especially in this market, really should be thrown out the window. I know that's tough for local authorities. Because let's face it, the local authorities haven't got the housing stock to service the demand that's already existing. But where somebody has has been forced to leave their accommodation through no fault of their own, and even actually where somebody has been forced to leave their accommodation and we believe there is some level of blame. For instance, they haven't paid their rent. We could say that's level. But actually, if they've lost their income or if their income is insufficient because of the local conditions... All of that really should be part of our current system. And, of course, it's not all part of our current system. Uh, it, it varies. It varies. And, and and actually, we know that some of those tests vary from local authority to local authority as well. So, um, so there's a bit of a lottery in there. The point is, nothing is guaranteed. You have to go through this uh, through this assessment. And, of course, she didn't get she didn't get what she needed. Tim, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a really fascinating insight. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for joining us. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, you can head to our website where you'll find a range of resources and organisations that offer support and advice. Go to emmaus.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'll be releasing a new episode every two weeks until early December. Stick with us and we'd love it if you shared our podcast and left us a review. See you in the next episode.